Amen. Well, tonight, believe it or not, we were supposed to have a um, we were supposed to have a missionary with us tonight. One of our missionaries that we support, uh, we had scheduled for him to come, and then I, I think it was I think yesterday, I think it was yesterday or Monday, he sent me an email and he says, uh, "Brother, you're not going to believe this, but uh, we are sick and we are not going to be able to make it." And uh, so we were supposed to have. Um, uh, one of our missionaries, but we were able to reschedule, so he should be here in two weeks, I think. We got him coming back here for about, in about two weeks, so um, we'll be able to have him uh, share a little about what God's been doing in their ministry. So tonight, ta-da! Yay. All right, Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8. And uh, Hosea chapter 8, we've been going through. Uh, the book of Hosea here, we'll read through uh, chapter 8, it's just 14 verses. We started looking at this last week, and um, uh, I am kind of glad we get to kind of finish it tonight, Lord willing, hopefully, we'll see how far we get, um, but just kind of a continuation of where we were looking uh, last week. Hosea chapter 8, he says, set the trumpet to thy mouth, he shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Israel shall cry unto me, my God, we know thee. Israel hath cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols, that they may be cut off. Thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? For from Israel was it also, the workmen made it. Therefore it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It hath no stalk, the bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the stranger shall swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. For they are gone up to Assyria, a wild ass alone by himself. Ephraim hath hired lovers, yea, though they have hired among the nations, now will I gather them, and they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of princes. Because Ephraim hath made many altars to sin, altars shall be unto him to sin. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. They sacrifice flesh for the sacrifices of mine offerings, and eat it, but the Lord accepteth them not. Now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel hath forgotten his maker and buildeth temples. And Judah hath multiplied fenced cities. But I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour the palaces thereof. So last week we began looking. We looked at the first six verses here. And he talks about there at the beginning. He says, set the trumpet to thy mouth. In other words, he's saying, sound the alarm. An alarm needs to be sounded. A call needs to be made. Because as, as we know, the Bible speaks about the watchmen that were set upon the walls and uh, the, the guard or the watchmen. It was their responsibility uh, to be alert, to be awake. And if they saw an enemy coming, they were to sound an alarm. And if they sounded the alarm and the people didn't pay any attention to it and they died, then that was on them. 
because the watchman had done his job. But if the watchman saw the enemy coming and uh, judgment coming, but didn't sound the alarm and people died, then God says the, the blood would be upon the watchman's hand because he did not do his job. He did not fulfill his responsibility. And so in the same manner, he's saying, set the trumpet to thy mouth, sound an alarm. There, there, there is an alarm that needs to be made against Israel, that there is judgment coming and people need to know that judgment is coming. Now, again, it's up to them what they do with the knowledge of it, but the alarm needs to be made. The, the proclamation needs to be there that judgment is coming against Israel. Right. And so he talks about this and he gives different illustrations about this. We saw in verses one through six, he talks about the eagle. He uses an illustration of an eagle. And again, we're not going to go through the whole thing. I would encourage you, if you were not here last Wednesday, uh, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to, to last Wednesday's message uh, of those first six verses, because it really helps you to understand more about what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter. But it's just uh, so this, this whole thing is just so, uh, it's such an incredible picture of what's taking place even in our own country and, and the world today. But he gives this picture of an eagle and how an eagle, as uh, we looked last week, an eagle, as they, they, they hover uh, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 feet above the earth. And uh, as they are hovering there, they're, they're looking for prey. Uh, and, and when they find the prey, when they see that the prey is unsuspecting and, and when they see the prey is, is where it shouldn't be and it's out of protection... Man, they just, they dive and, and they can reach a hundred miles an hour and they take those talons and they just, they, they latch on to whatever prey is there and, and there's really no hope for that prey. And he says, that's how this, this judgment is coming. And he's using this eagle as a picture of Assyria. Uh, Assyria is going to be the one that is going to come and they're going to come swiftly and they're going to be destructive and, and destroy Israel because of what we, we looked at in verses one through six. They transgressed God's covenant. They trespassed against God's law. They cast off the thing that was good. They set up their own kings. They made gods of gold and silver. And so he speaks about all of those things in verses 1 through 6. He continues, though, in verse number 7. He says, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It hath no stalk. The bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the stranger shall swallow it up. So the second picture that he uses here is a picture of sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping. And I think we are all very familiar with sowing and reaping. The concept of sowing and reaping is not a foreign concept, right? It's not a foreign concept. In fact, it's such a simple concept that everyone understands it. Everybody understands the law of sowing and reaping. It's a concept that God uses often throughout the pages of Scripture. When you sow... You will reap what you sow. If you sow little, you reap little. If you sow much, you reap much. Again, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a difficult concept to understand. And yet what he's saying here is, watch what, what he says, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Right? He's talking about what, what are they sowing? They're, they're sowing all of this wickedness. They're sowing all this, um, this sensuality and everything that is taking place. And in all they were doing, they were sowing, but God says they're just, it's, it's like you're, you're sowing into the wind. Nothing, nothing's happening with it. it. You're just, you're sowing it, uh, but it's, it's so wicked and you're going to reap the whirlwind. 
right? I mean, we all like, you know, on a, on a summer day when it's really hot, we like that nice breeze to come through, you know, it just kind of cools everything off, right? I mean, that's, that's, a nice, that's a nice breeze. The problem really comes when the breeze picks up a little bit, right? And it picks up to 30 miles an hour and 40 miles an hour and 50 mile an hour. And then the real problem starts when the wind starts going like this, right? And it turns into what? A tornado, right? I mean, man, the wind is nice, right? Until it becomes not nice. Until it becomes very dangerous. And he says, you're, you're sowing the wind, but you're going to reap a whirlwind. The, the destruction that is going to come is going to come so severe. It's like a whirlwind. It's like that tornado. It's just going to come with such severity here. And notice what he said. He, again, he uses this illustration of sowing. It hath no stalk. In other words, you're, you're sowing, but what, what is coming up is it's dead. It's, there's nothing there, right? It's empty. Um, it, it was all in vain. They would, they would, the, um, what was planted produced no stalk. Uh, the bud shall yield no meal. So there, there's nothing coming from it because again, why are they, why are they not receiving anything? Because they're not sowing the right thing. They're not sowing anything. All they're sowing is just sensuality. They're sowing pleasure. They're sowing what they want and they're reaping nothing. There's no grain. And what and he, and he uses this phrase, if so be it yield, the stranger shall swallow it up. Even if there was an opportunity for it to yield something, then he said somebody else is going to come along and take it, right? So what do they get out of it? Nothing. Nothing but judgment, right? And again, we, so many times we think, oh, you know, I'll just enjoy life and, and I'll enjoy the pleasures and I'll have all of these things. And God says, you don't understand, you're, you're, you're sowing nothing, and therefore, you're going to reap nothing. You're going to reap nothing in return. That's why he says, you know, we are, we are to lay up treasure in heaven where moth and, doth, moth and dust doth not corrupt. Why? Because when you lay up treasure here, guess what you get? Nothing. You don't get anything. It's all temporary. And this was what they were doing. And they, so he uses this picture of sowing and reaping. In, in verse number 8, he says, Israel is swallowed up now. Now... Shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure? So this other picture that he gives is like a worthless pottery. It's just worthless vessel, this worthless pot, right? Uh, you know, again, you want vessels that are meaningful. You want vessels, uh, pots or cups or anything like that. You want it to do a specific job. But he said, Israel is like a worthless pot, right? He says, a vessel wherein is no pleasure, they had made all of these leagues with the Gentile nations, right? They made leagues with Assyria. They made leagues with the Babylonians. They made leagues with the uh, Egyptians. They made leagues with all these different people. But now the Gentiles, he says, are going to look at Israel like a worthless pot. They, they thought they were really, again, when you're thinking about it, again, remember this whole this whole picture of what we're seeing in Hosea goes all the way back to what we saw in the first couple chapters of Hosea and Gomer, right? And, and Gomer, after a while, she became worthless. She, she thought she was something, but she became worthless. N nobody wanted to have anything to do with her. He's saying, this is what's happening to Israel. You, you, you think you're so special, but yet nobody wants to have anything to do with you. You're, you're a vessel that, that is no, wherein is no pleasure 
And he says, Israel is swallowed up. In other words, they're just, they're going to be consumed. That they're going to be consumed by these other nations. And, and, and no one is going to care. They had no value to anyone around them anymore. Those around them had gotten everything they wanted out of them. They had gotten it all. And now they're, they're, they're worthless. That there's nothing of value anymore that they have. And so now when those nations realize there's nothing of value anymore, it's not that they, they're not going to keep wanting to be allies and friends. He says, now we don't care anything about you. Sounds a little bit like the passage that we find in the New Testament about the prodigal son. As long as he had something, oh, he had friends. But as soon as what he had disappeared, what happened? No friends when it, no friends anymore, Right? And now he's left doing what? He's left feeding the, the pigs. He's left feeding the, the, the hogs here. He, it was the same thing with Israel. They were nothing more than a, than a worthless pot. They had no value. They were broken. He says in verse number 9, For they are gone up to Assyria, a wild ass alone by himself. It's really interesting. Again, we... we these pictures that he gives are really... Back in chapter 7, we saw that Israel was like a silly dove, right? He talks about them being like a silly dove. In other words, they're senseless, right? They're senseless. They, they, they don't even have common sense. He talks about them uh, being a worthless pot. Here he talks about them being a lonely donkey. A lonely donkey. Out in the middle of nowhere. Just a lonely donkey. They're gone up to Assyria, a wild ass alone by himself. Again, think about it. They had turned to Assyria for help. When, when you go back and you read, and we don't have time to, to get in there tonight, but if you go back into 2 Kings chapter 15 and you find how uh, the king of Israel, after he had uh, basically assassinated the previous king, um, he, he realizes, hey, I've got to get some help here. And so what does he do? He goes to Assyria and he says, hey, if you guys will, will take it easy on us, we'll pay you, right? And we'll pay you. And, he, and then they were paying them to take it easy on them. Well, until they decided they didn't want to pay anymore. And then when they decided they didn't want to pay anymore, they had, they had broken all their friendships. They had broken all their treaties and everything. And he says, You're, you are out here alone, all by yourself. Again, think about it. This was, this was the nation that God had brought out of Egypt. This was the nation that God had given great victory to. And yet he says, now you're all alone. Nobody cares anything about you. Nobody wants to have anything to do with you. They were all alone, like just like a, a dumb animal by itself in the wilderness. They had, for, they had forsaken God, and now she had been forsaken by her allies. She had been forsaken by those who had called themselves friends to face judgments alone. Nobody was going to face judgment with them. They were all by themselves. He says at the end of verse number 9, Ephraim hath hired lovers. Yea, though they have hired among the nations, now will I gather them, and they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of princes. Again, he uses this illustration of Israel being a prostitute. Again, as we have seen throughout the book of Hosea with Gomer and Hosea, uh, as Hosea or Gomer sold herself into, uh, into prostitution, he says that Israel is like that. They become like a common prostitute selling themselves. And when that didn't satisfy, again, notice what he says here. He says, Ephraim hath hired lovers. 
So they had sold themselves out, but then when they weren't getting anything for that, now they have to hire the lovers themselves. Yea, though they have hired among the nations, now will I gather them and they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of princes. I mean, they were, they were trying to do anything they could to satisfy the, the, the pleasures and things that they had, and yet nothing could satisfy. They went to Assyria for help. They sent gifts to Egypt. He said, you, you've hired the nations, but he says, now will I gather them, and they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of princes. He said, You're, in just a short amount of time, there's going to be sorrow like you have never imagined before. Sorrow like you've never seen before. But then he comes, and, and really, I want to focus kind of on the last few verses here. Because he says in verse number 11, Because Ephraim hath made many altars to sin, altars shall be unto him to sin. I want you to think about that. It's a very interesting thing that God says. Because Ephraim hath made many altars to sin, altars shall be unto him to sin. That's an interesting phrase. An interesting verse here. They made altars to sin, so altars shall be unto him to sin. Now, what... What was an altar? In the, in the biblical day, what was the purpose of an altar? You see it not just in, with Israel, but you see it even all the way in the, in the, book, of, in the book of Genesis. You, you, in the book of Genesis, you find when uh, Abraham is following God and, and he meets with God, what does he do? He erects an altar and he offers a sacrifice on the altar. And what does he do? He worships God there. You find uh, Jacob, when Jacob is going back to Haran, and, and on the way there, he, uh, he, he has that dream of, uh, of the ladder coming down from heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending. And, and what does he do? He builds an altar there. And, uh, and, and all throughout, you find people, whenever they, whenever they come to a time to worship God, they will, they will build an altar of worship. You see, the altar was supposed to be a place of worship. It was a place of sacrifice. They were worshiping God through this. It was to be a place of worship and a place of sacrifice. But Israel decided to turn away from God. Israel decided that, uh, and, and again, even when you go back to the, to the tabernacle and you, you look at the, the brazen altar that was there and the altar of incense and, and the things that were there in the worship of God in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, it was to be a place to worship God. And God had given them a place. God had said, in Jerusalem, I want you to worship. But after the kingdoms have divided, you have Jeroboam and the ten northern tribes and uh, Judah and the two southern tribes there. Israel and the northern tribe, Jeroboam says, look, we don't want our our people going back to worship. And so we're going to set up our own idols. We're going to set up, we're going to make two golden calves and we're going to put them in Israel. And those are going to be the places that you're going to go and worship. But that wasn't enough. They began to set up altars all over the place. They began to set up pagan uh, uh, temples and altars all over uh, of places of what they would call worship. Now, again, think about this. Are they going to these altars to worship? 
Yes, they are. They're going to worship. But worship who? You see, they were not going to worship God. They were not going to worship Jehovah God. They were going there to worship however they wanted to worship. He says, you have made altars to sin. You have have made this worship however you want it to be. You, You looked at what God had said and you said, you know what? We don't want what God says. We don't want to worship the way God says. We don't want to follow what God says. And so what we're going to do is we're going to set up our own way of worship. By the way, did you know that Satan is not against religion? He's not against religion. He's very much for religion. Why? Because through religion, he can convince you that you can worship God the way that you want to worship God. And you can make God the way you want to make God. You don't really need to follow what God says. You don't really need to do what God says. You're, I mean, after all, you're smart enough. Right? I mean, you, you're smart enough to know what to worship and what not to worship. I mean, I mean, anybody in his right mind knows that this thing right here that was made by somebody ought to be worshipped. Right? Well, that's what they were doing. That's what he says. They were, make, they were taking their gold and their silver and they were making altars. It, we, we just read it earlier in the verse, right? Look back up in, um, in verse number 4. Of their silver and their gold, have they made them idols that they may be cut off? Thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. He said, you, you've made these altars, for from Israel was it also. The workmen made it, therefore it is not God. He says, you're making these altars of your own ideas, your own imaginations. But he says, they're not God. But yet you're calling them God, and you're going to worship them as God. And so you're making these altars... To sin. Again, you, when you go back and you find out what is going on in Israel, and, and we've gone over this a little bit, but just the, the wickedness that was rampant in Israel during this time. The, the, what was going on with, with the religious people, the priests and everything, and, and all of the, the adultery and the immorality and the wickedness that was taking place, all in the name of worship. This is how you worship God. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to enjoy life. God wants you to have fun. So this is all worship to God. What did they do? They made altars to sin. They decided they didn't want to worship God the way God said to worship. They wanted to worship how they wanted to worship. I don't need to listen to God. I'll do it my way. I don't need to follow what God says. I'll do it my way. I don't need to, to get in the word of God. After all, I mean, I, I've got some common sense and I can read some books that other people have written and I can really learn from them. Look, please understand, I'm not against reading books that other people have written. I, I have a, a whole library full of books that other people have written. But it's not God. Those books are not written by God. And when I start substituting books that have been written by men for the book that was written by God, I've got a serious problem. 
What am I doing? I'm making an altar to sin. I'm saying, God, I don't need you anymore. I can do without you. So I'll take all these other books. I'll take all these, what, all these other people, their opinions, their ideas, and I'll follow them instead of going to the very one who has given us exactly what he wants us to do and saying, God, I'm going to follow you. They've made altars to sin. And we see all over our country and all over the world today, people making altars to sin. Altars to sin. We don't want to worship the way God tells us to worship. So we're going to make up our own way of worship. Worship the way we want to worship. Now please understand, look, I know, I'm not, I'm not even talking today, I'm not even talking tonight about all the different um, methods that are going on in churches and things with music and light, I'm not even talking about that. Like, oh yeah, I mean, all, all these churches are, you know, they're, they're not worshiping, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about as Christians, we build altars in our lives to sin. It has nothing to do with worship in the church. Instead of saying, God, what do you want? God, what is your plan for my life? We say, I don't want God's will. I don't want God's plan. I'm going to worship God the way I want to worship. I don't need the Bible. I don't need prayer. I don't need the church. I don't need the family of God. I don't need these things. I'll make my own worship. And we're making altars to sin. We're saying, God, I don't need you. Watch. So what does God do? He says, Ephraim hath made many altars to sin. Altars shall be unto him to sin. Say, so what does that mean? God says, all right, if you want to make your own altars to sin, fine. Have it your way. Have it your way. You go right ahead and have your own way of worship. You go right ahead and, go, go right ahead and make up your own God. You go right ahead and do what you think is right in your eyes. You go right ahead and live your life the way you want to live it. You go right ahead and live for pleasure and live for sensuality. You go right ahead and live the way you want to live but don't come crying to me. What's it, what did he say at the beginning? Hey, sound the alarm. There, there's an alarm that needs to be sounded. As Christians, we have made altars to sin in our lives. And we just think, well, because I'm a Christian, that that must mean it's okay. I'm a Christian. God says, hey, it's, it's not a problem. No, it's an altar to sin when we don't do it the way God says to do it. Look, I understand we're under grace. Thank God for grace. We are saved by grace through faith, plus nothing, minus nothing. But grace does not give us a license to go out and say, I will live however I choose and do whatever I want to do. That is not grace. We are, we are living in a society of, as Christians that are basically saying, hey, I am saved, so therefore I am free to do whatever I want to do, and I will make God into whoever I want him to be. And we make altars to sin and think that we are worshiping. Look, they, they were worshiping. They were making the altars to worship. 
just not God. We make altars of our family. We make altars of our jobs. We make altars of finances. We make altars of sports. We make altars of all kinds of things. And God says, all right. If that's the way you want it, go ahead. Go ahead. You want to make an altar of sports with your kids? Go ahead. When your kids turn their back on God, there's no one to blame but you. You want to make an altar of your job? Go ahead. But when your family falls apart and you're, you're left with nothing, don't blame anybody but you. You want to make an altar of your finances? You want to make an altar of these things? You want to make these your altars? This is your worship? Go ahead. That's what he says. Because Ephraim hath made many altars to sin, altars shall be unto him to sin. You want to make them to worship? Go ahead. Go ahead. God says, I'm not going to stop you. I've already warned you. And the warning is being given. You want to keep going? Go ahead. But there's no one to blame but yourself. No one to blame. He says in verse 12, I have written to him the great things of my law. But they were counted as a strange thing. Can you imagine this? The ignorance that they have. The people of God. God says, I have written to them. Think about this. I have written to them of the great things of my law. But they didn't know anything about God's law. Not that they didn't know it was there. No, no, no. He says, I have written to them. God had given them his his written word, but it was a strange thing to them. He says it was a strange thing. they, they, They were counted as a strange thing. How sad that God's people would would look at the law of God and say, man, that's that's strange. What? What? I mean, that's just. This is this is God's word. God's people, the children of Israel that God had had given them his word through Moses and the prophets. And and now, even even toward the end of the time of Israel, through these minor prophets and things, God is giving his word. And they're looking at it like, no, I don't don't think so. That doesn't sound very good. They were ignorant of God's laws. They were ignorant of God's word. How sad that in America there are people who don't know what a Bible is. We say America is a Christian nation. Our nation is anything but Christian. The words of God are strange to them. You don't think the words of God are strange to our country? Turn the TV on. I don't care if you're looking at the news. I don't care if you're looking at uh, a sports show. I don't care what you're watching. You will, every, anything that you watch, you will find the word of God is strange to them. It's strange. Our nation is anything but Christian. When you have those leading our country banning prayer, 
saying we can't pray, when you have people wanting to take in God we trust off of police vehicles and money and all these different things. And please understand, I'm not, I'm not saying only one group is doing this. It's not just one group. It's not Republican or Democrat or whatever. No, I'm talking about all of them. All of them. When you have those exalting the death of the unborn, publicly exalting their death, when you have those promoting the agenda that you, can, you get to choose what gender you want to be out of the 70 or 100 different genders they've come up with recently, you know what, you, you understand, we're living in a nation that was so blessed by God and founded on biblical principles. Look at the Constitution, the biblical principles are there. But we are living in a nation who does not know who God is or His Word. It is a strange thing to them. You say, well, it's not strange to me. Well, praise God it's not strange to you. But I guarantee if you just took Preble County itself with about 45,000 people, I guarantee you, you're going to find a vast majority who the Word of God is strange to. And we got churches all over. But the Word of God is strange to them. And this is what he says, I have written to him the great things of my law. Man, do we not have the, the great things of God here? Have we not seen God do great things through our nation, through, through, through churches and through revivals and through missions and things? But yet, what does he say? But they were counted as a strange thing. The ignorance. They did not know the word of God. Can you imagine? You say, how could that be? Just look around. We have more copies of the Word of God than any other nation in the world. We send copies of the Word of God to other nations. And yet, the Word of God is a strange thing in our nation. Why is that? Why is the word of God a strange thing? Is it because we have made idols to sin? We've made altars to sin. We've said, God, I don't care what your plan is. God, I don't care that I'm supposed to be reaching the world. God, I don't care that I'm supposed to be living for you. I'm going to live my life the way I want to do it. And so we're going to live the way we want. And we're going to keep whatever the things of God are hidden. We're not going to let them be seen. We're not going to let them be known. And therefore, a world becomes strange to the things of God because those that know the things of God remain silent about the things of God. And we're living in a world that is a stranger to God's word, to the things of God, just as Israel was. He says in verse 13, they sacrifice flesh for the sacrifices of mine offerings. You notice that? He says they're, they're worshiping, they're offering, they're even offering the right sacrifices. They were bringing the right sacrifices. But what does he say? But the Lord accepteth them not. The Lord accepteth them not. They went through all the motions, they went through all the rituals of the sacrifices. 
But God says, I do not accept it. Now, wait a minute. Hold on a second. God, you said to bring a certain type of animal for a certain type of sacrifice. I did it. God, you said to do this. I did it. What do you mean you won't accept it? I mean, it's not like, you know, when God, when Cain and Abel in the Garden of Eden, Cain brought a, a, a sacrifice of his own works of the fruit of the ground, and God says, I'm not going to accept that. If you bring the, the right sacrifice, I'll accept it. Isn't that what God told Cain? You bring the right sacrifice, I'll accept it. Well, isn't God being a little unreasonable here then? Because they brought the right sacrifice, and God says, I don't accept it. Why, why would God not accept their sacrifice? He says, but the Lord accepteth them not. Why wouldn't he accept it? Because you can't keep your sin and try to worship God at the same time. You can't keep your sin and try to worship and expect God to accept your worship. They, they, they had no trouble for turning away from God and living a, a, a sensual, wicked lifestyle. But when it came time to worship, okay, here, here's the sacrifice, right? This is the, this is the right sacrifice. This is the lamb. This is the bullock. This is whatever. This is the sacrifice. This is the one that we're supposed to bring. All right. And then they go right back to their sensual, wicked living and all of this stuff. Oh, it's time to sacrifice. Let's bring the right sacrifice. Okay, here's the bullock. Here's the lamb. Here's whatever. All right, God, we offer the right sacrifice. And they go right back. You can't live that way and expect God to accept your worship. You, you cannot say, all right, Lord, hey, I'm in church. Here I am. I've got my Bible. Here I am. I gave my tithe. Here I am. And then go out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and live however you want, and then come back again on Sunday or Wednesday and say, all right, God, here's, here's my Bible. Here, here I am. Here's my offerings. And then go right back. You can't expect God to accept that worship. But we do. We think God should ex- accept that. We think God should say, oh, look at you. You came on Wednesday and you came on Sunday and you've given your tithe and, and you've got, man, I'm so proud of you. Yeah, go ahead. Go out, go out and live however you want to. Make sure you come back on Wednesday and Sunday, though. Really? Have we made God so low that we think that that is acceptable to God? Because that is exactly what Israel did. Their God had become so low, as long as we bring the right sacrifice, we can live however we want to the rest of our life. We don't have to worry about judgment. We can live all that we want to because we brought the right sacrifice. God says, I don't accept it. I don't care how many sacrifices you bring. I can't remember if it was in Amos or Joel or wherever it was. But he says, you can bring 10,000 sacrifices and I still won't accept it. I don't care how many sacrifices you bring. I will not accept it. Why? Because our heart is still not right. The heart is not right. If I think somehow that I can expect God to accept my worship and go out and continue living the way that I want to live, my heart is not right. That's what God says about Israel. He says, with their mouth they worship me, but their heart is far from me. And Christians, so many Christians in America, we're saying, hey, I'm going to worship with my mouth, but our heart is so far from God. That's why it doesn't bother us when we don't read our Bible. It doesn't bother us when we don't walk with God. It doesn't bother us when we can, we can just do without the things of God without even thinking about it. There's no conviction anymore. Why? Because our heart is so far from God. 
Those things don't even bother us anymore. But yet we still expect God to bless us and accept our worship. God says, I don't accept that. I'm not going to accept that. In fact, he says, now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins. You see, here's the thing. God says, yes, you're offering the sacrifice, but here's the problem. There's no repentance. There's no repentance in what you're doing. Your sin is still there. Your iniquity is still there. You, you haven't done anything about that. You're just going through the motions and the rituals, expecting God to accept your worship so you can live however you want to live. Look, I'm sorry, and I'm not, meaning to be, I'm not meaning to be mean or cruel here, but can I tell you, that's the way a lot of religions teach. Hey, you live however you want to live, but make sure you come back here on Sunday or whatever, get, get forgiven, and then you can go back and live the way, the way you want to live the rest of the week. That's not of God. That is not the way God says we're supposed to live as Christians. That's not the way he wanted his people to live. And so he says, now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins. They would not repent. They were going through motions. They were going through the rituals. But they had not repented. So he says, they shall return to Egypt. Now this is interesting. Because Israel never returned to Egypt. So why does he say this? Egypt is mentioned 13 times throughout the book of Hosea. Just like Ephraim is mentioned much, right? As Ephraim is mentioned, Ephraim is referring to Israel. It's a, it's a type of Israel. He's using it as the picture of Israel. When he says that they shall return to Egypt, he's not saying they're going to actually go back to the land of Egypt. But what happened in Egypt? You see, their past bondage and exodus from Egypt is talked about. Their unholy alliances with Egypt is talked about. But Egypt was a symbol of their coming bondage. As they had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years, God says they're going to return to Egypt, not to the place of Egypt, to what happened in Egypt. And that is the bondage that they experienced in Egypt, the captivity that they experienced and that's why he says, if you, if you actually go back over to chapter 11, um, just jump down right there with me a little bit. Just as they had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years, again, God says they would return to bondage. Again, not in Egypt, but in Assyria. In chapter 11, notice in verse number 5, He shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to return. Because he's saying... It's, they're not talk, he's not talking about going back to the land of Egypt, but what happened in Egypt, the bondage, the captivity that they experienced in Egypt because they would not return, they would not repent of their sin, because they would not do what was right. God says they were going to fall back into bondage. They were going to fall back into captivity. He says, for Israel hath forgotten his maker and buildeth temples. And Judah hath multiplied fenced cities, but I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. Egypt, excuse me, Israel was going to go back in to bondage. 
because they would not repent. Back into captivity as a result of their sin. This is, again, this is why he's saying, put to, uh, set the trumpet to thy mouth, sound the alarm, let it be known. Hosea, let it be known what is coming. Because once you let it be known, it's up to them. And their choice will be on their heads. You sound the alarm. You make the cry. You, you, you cry out and tell them what's coming. But then, Hosea, it's not on you, it's on them. If they choose to repent, then God says, I'll return and I'll heal them. Remember, we talked about that. He said, I would have healed Israel back in chapter 7, verse number 1. I would have healed you if you had just repented and returned. I would have healed you. They wouldn't return. They wouldn't return. Why? Because verse 14. For Israel hath forgotten his maker. They forgot their God. They forgot the one who created them. The one who created the universe. They forgot the one that called Abram from the Ur of the Chaldees. They forgot the one that brought them out of Egypt and delivered them. They forgot the one that provided for them for 40 years in the wilderness. They forgot the one that parted the Red Sea and the Jordan River so they could cross into the promised land. They forgot the one who had fought for them battle after battle after battle. Oh, they still knew his name, but they had forgotten him. They had turned from him. What do you expect to happen when you turn your back on God? What do you expect to happen? You expect God just to keep blessing? You expect God just to keep saying, oh, that's all right. Yep, yep, it's okay. It's all right. It's been, a, it's been 600 years, but it's okay. I mean, really, what do we expect when we turn our back on God? When you say, God, I don't need you anymore. I've got my religion. I've got my altars that I'm worshiping. I've got my protection. I've got my security. That's what they said. Did you not read it? Israel hath forgotten his maker and buildeth temples. There's their worship. There's their religion. Judah hath multiplied fenced cities. They're secure. They have safety. They have security. But I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. Do we really think somehow that we are secure in what we're doing against God? I don't need God. I've got my job, I've got my security. I've got my savings. I've got my, my retirement. Do you really think God just can't touch those things and all of a sudden they're gone? We get this idea that we've got it all figured out and we've got it all planned out. And please understand, I believe that it is very scriptural to plan for the future. I believe it's scriptural to plan for retirement and all those different things. But do we really believe that we can turn our back on God and say, God, I don't need you anymore. I've got my plans. I've got my desires. This is what I'm going to do. And think that God just can't touch it and say, it's gone. If that's how you're going to look at me, you're going to forget your maker. You're going to forget the one that saved you. I can get your attention. 
If you're not just going to, if you're not going to listen to the warning, if you're not going to repent, I have ways of getting your attention. Look, I'm not saying we're going to be going into captivity and bondage, but God has a whole lot of ways to get our attention. Wouldn't it just be better to say, you know what, God, I've made some pretty poor decisions. God, I am like that donkey. I'm alone. I'm like that silly dove. I've lost common sense. I have forgot my maker. I'm a worthless pot. I've done all these different things. And God, I need to stop. And I need to repent. And I need to turn from these, these altars that I've made. And I need to come back to you and say, God, you and you alone are my God. God, you and you alone are the one I worship. God, you and you alone are the one who has plans for my life. So God, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to turn from these things. These things are never going to satisfy anyway. It's empty. They're not going to last. And so God, I'm going to turn to you and repent. And I'm going to ask you to heal me. I'm going to ask you to forgive me and help me start afresh. You know what God says? I'll do it. I'll heal you if we're willing to repent, if we're willing to turn. But we keep on going and we keep on going and we keep on going. You're going to make altars to sin. God says, fine. You're on your own. And Christian, that's not a good place to be. We need to stop. And we need to turn back and say, God, I've messed up. And I need to repent. And I need to turn to you and follow you. I wonder where their heads bowed and their eyes closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking about tonight. Christian, is there something in your life tonight that you know God is speaking to your heart about? Maybe there's some altar that you've set up to sin. I'm not talking about an idol in your house, a golden image or something like that. But you know there's something that you have put in your life before God. That's an altar to sin. Maybe God is speaking to your heart tonight saying it's time to get rid of that altar. It's time to tear it down and get it out. Christian, maybe there's some things in your life that you say, you know, Pastor, God's just been dealing with me and I've been going down the road my own way, my own path. I thought I've got it made. I've got it all figured out. I've got my plans, but I haven't been following God's plans. I haven't been following what God wanted for me. Maybe tonight God is speaking to your heart about something. 
just a moment, if we could stand quietly to our feet with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. The piano is just going to play softly tonight. Christian, maybe there's something that God has spoken to your heart about. Maybe tonight you need to come to an altar. Not an altar that you've made. But an altar and say, God, I, I've messed up. I've been living my life the way I want to live it. 